describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Happy New Year. That's right. We survived another New Year. We're not dead yet. Congratulations. 1983, James. That's good. How do you feel 1983 is going to be? Feeling it? I'm feeling it's a good year. Mm -hmm. I think I'm I'm 13 now, so I can go to PG-13 if there was such a thing as a PG-13. I don't think PG-13 happened for a couple more years, but I don't remember when that. What grade were you in in 19... 80, so so it's January 1983. Yes. So I am, I will be turning 15 uh, very soon in February. I'm 14. All right. I'm 13 because I'll be 14 in September. And we know you're still dressing up for Halloween. We've, right. We've, confer- we've learned that from prior episodes. Yes. So you're in eighth grade? Uh, well, so I never went to eighth grade. Got it. I went from You're so smarty pants. I went from seventh grade to ninth grade. Did you really? Yes. Did you in retro, Did you like it at the time? Oh, I was thrilled to death. But I'm like, well, I want to get out of school as quickly as possible. You're very forward. You were forward looking even at a young age. I wanted to get out. I graduated when I was 16. I wanted to get out as quickly as I could. Get that gas station job. Right. Come to Florida. Spend, <laughs> spend a year w- working because I, you know, you couldn't. I couldn't pay the out-of-state tuition, so I spent the year working. So, I, I graduated in '86. I was supposed to graduate in '87. So. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, so you okay? So, so all right. So I was held back a year. No, I'm just kidding. So, all right. So yeah. So you are you're getting ready. So you are in. Wait. So when did you? What grade? You skipped eighth grade. Eighth grade. So you were in ninth grade. That's right. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So. Uh, and and there's a, that's why dodgeball. I'm I'm pretty good at dodgeball because the sadists that did the scheduling, our class was uh, a year skipped. Right, we went from seventh to ninth. They put us in the same gym class as the people who were left behind, who fell back. So it was the convicts versus the geeks, basically. Nice. And of nice. course, they'd split us up by that way. They'd be like nine sixteen, nine thirteen, and so. The men who were behind, you know, eight, 16 year old men were throwing giant bombs at the small, you know, small little children like us. I couldn't throw the ball, but I could catch it. And I got good. I'd leave with welts on my arms from, because you couldn't run. Running was the worst thing, and hiding was also bad, because then they would just hunt you down. And, right. And, and I've seen small little Filipino children just get blasted. So that's, that was my high school. Super fun. Very exciting. Wow. This is quite a year for you. This is. So that's, 
Yeah, this is 1983. It's, you know, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times kind of thing. You know, it's, it's all good. Well, we have all over the globe, the Grog, Grog Empire has awoken to see us after our uh, sabbatical, our holiday solstice or whatever else. Four. Four more than, than we should deserve. So there you go. I, as I said, people are waking up. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're like, oh, my goodness, it's been a month. We, we got to get on the GrogCon. People were anticipating. So with that said, we're looking forward to another exciting year of talking about a game that's been out of print for 30-something years. And getting older and older. <laughs> it's now. Getting old and older. Yeah, so anyway, let's, uh, let's get into it. Um, first of all, GrogCon is coming. GrogCon 23. Oh, There's the, something scratching at the door. The, who is it? I wonder what, what, is that a random encounter? Check. Let's see. I'll be, I'll be like the guy at Bree in Lord of the Rings where it's like, what's your business? Hey, it's none of your business. Okay, come on in. <laughs> come Sorry. on in, sure. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. Let's see what, let's see who it is. Who is it? It's Jack. Oh, it's Jack. Well, here, come here. Jack the Hellhound. Oh, my goodness. Hello. And Jack is here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everyone. We, we, we've, we've, Hi. Heard from, we've heard from the viewers, and they've said more Jack more in Jack, 1983. More Jack and less of you and you two. In fact, just have a... <laughs> we're, we're, just have a, a, a we're just going to have a pet show, right? <laughs> That's right. Bring the cats. Right. Cats and dogs. So, um, GrogCon 23, Orcus Fest. We need, yeah. I need to come up with a promo. Feast of Orcus, September 29th through October 1st. It's at the Doubletree. It's coming, whether we like it or not. There's something funny about Orcus Fest. At the Doubletree. <laughs> 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 like that jet, like lounge music behind yeah. it. Orcus Fest. Orcus. Orcus Fest. 1983 is uh, 29th through the first, uh, at the Doubletree. The, the coupon, whatever, the hotel special rate has been posted on our website. Uh, there, uh, Craig was telling us there's going to be a little different way how we post games, so we'll have to see how that works out because, we, you know, we said last year some people were not so thrilled the way it kind of came out one at a time, the games, and then people were angry. You know, any kind of reservation system is always a horrible thing, so... Right. Further confirming why we love being attached to someone else's convention. Right. That's right. Which is now attached to someone else's convention. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just endless links. We are the opener to the opener now. So, so anyway, that's what's happening. So if you are able to come to the happy place known as GrogCon 23, um, we're probably, if you, uh, if you want, if you are a patron of a uh, Electrum or higher, by March 1st, let's, we're going to change this up a little bit. We want to get these tickets out the door. So if you, are, if you become a Electrum patron or higher from between now and through April 1st and you want to come, then send me a note uh, through Patreon and we will pay for your admission. Wow. That's, that That's very nice? generous of us. That is very generous to take the money that you sent us and give it back to you. <laughs> it's got... It's kind of like this. How many gift cards do you got on Christmas? So I, I find now that I've just exchanged gift cards with a lot of people. You know, I, right. we literally swap just yeah. gift cards. Which doesn't make any sense no. at all. Right. Um, people should just no. give. Not, right. We, I tell specific people, do not give me gift cards. I hate gift cards. Because then I have this pressure to get rid of them before they either expire or I lose them because I'm... Or you lose them. There's a lot of money made off right. of gift cards by companies because people never... Right. You they, lose them. They they go away and whatever. Okay. 
So, um, fortunately, I didn't get a lot of gift cards. I see you got our gift arrived. Speaking Nick, of I that, I have your Christmas gift from. Is this is from two years ago? Two years ago, and and yours, of course, got lost. So I'm waiting for you. Correct. Yours. Mine was stopped at customs. Here you go, James. You want me to open it? Yes, for let's you? open it. Let's. Is, is this only mine, or did you get yourself a copy? No, I got mine too. Oh, so this is a separate. They're not in the same box. They're not in the same box. Oh, hang on. Now, now I have the difficulty figuring out how to open this. So, oh, this is good. So I, you'll hear this on the podcast. It being opened. Right. You hear, hear the the cardboard being ripped. It is truly a, an amazing thing. This. All right, and the big reveal. Look at that. Yes. Ooh, thank you so much. Golf claps all around. And for those listening on the podcast, this is the book Diceman by Ian Livingstone and Steve with. It says with Steve Jackson. Interesting. With Steve Jackson. Maybe that's a British thing. Maybe that's not a slight. Or maybe Ian Livingstone wrote it and, and Steve Jackson just kind of helped out. He was in the room. So this is Diceman, of course. The two gentlemen who created a games workshop and were therefore responsible for uh, White Dwarf, of course, magazine. And it is dedicated to Gary Gygax, which is very cool. But I want to show you this, James, because this is what should excite you. In the back, there is a list of supporters. And th so this is. Oh, they, so half the book is just the people who supported it? Look at that. And hopefully I spelled it right. They you did. It. Yes, there it is. James, you are listed there. Wow. How many? That's incredible. So we are, you, so this was a Kickstarter or something like that. Correct. Right? Some kind of fancy, and you, uh, in my name, did you put one for yourself as well? Um, maybe. It's not Dan Gormansky. Yeah, I won't, I won't comment That's on true. it. That's true. I don't know why I didn't put Dan Gormansky. I don't know why you didn't. I don't think they required you to put your no. real name. I mean, I used your name. Right, exactly. <laughs> you put any name you want. Right, you could have put anything. Seymour Butts. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. So this is, the again, the origin story of Games Workshop. Super cool. And... Um, you know, I'm, uh, we, uh, you are an Anglophile when it comes to D&D &D and other things as well. Is that a fair statement? I, I have a love-hate relationship with them. I, I love, so we, of course, love Daniel Collerton. We did. And we uh, did. David Whitehide. Well, we do. I'm sorry. We do. And, uh, yes. And. Uh, nice try. Keep going. But the Fiend Folio is a little rough in my yeah, it's a hit or miss. Well, but again, I think, you know, we've talked about this, that the Fiend Folio has monsters from particular adventures, and it makes sense in the adventure, adventure right. wackiness. So, right, but here it doesn't make any sense. I think the concept of the Fiend Folio, I'm not putting it all together. It's sort of like Dragon Man. It's sort of like Unearthed Arcana. Right. I don't mind the article. <gasps> you said the word. That's right. I don't, I don't mind this the... This year's going crappy already. <laughs> broken, broken one of your resolutions. It's a new me. Uh, the... I think the articles in isolation as options were fine, but collecting them and saying this is canon yeah. is wrong. Yeah. But so there it is. So well, thank you so much. I, I mean, it's two years in May. Menyon got it. Hello, Menyon. He's and he saw my name in there as well. So, so we, need uh, to, we need to. We need our viewers' help. Okay. Don't we? Of course. For example, we're here today. We're having Zach on, right? right from uh, Zenipus Archives. Very exciting. Right. In a couple hours. And. Uh, a, a viewer mm -hmm. helped get him right. for us. So you want us to get Ian Livingston or Steve Jackson? Don't you think? Absolutely. We need help. Well, I can talk to um, 
uh, Dirk the Dice. I know he knows them and has had them on his show. Who's? Uh, but it would be nice if we, it was a fan thing, so I can, so I can put it. So you notice that Gary Gygax didn't write. Did he ever write a book about being scorned with uh, Dave Arneson? That would be a funny book. No, he wrote a book on Dungeons. <laughs> it's called yeah. Yes. But I'm saying with. As opposed to this book, which is clearly a collaboration of two people that mutual respect, it would have right. been, been interesting to see the Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax version of circa 1986, when they both got gotten kicked out. And right, Gary Gygax and a little tiny <laughs> asterisk two, with two point five. That's right. With Dave Arneson. Uh, now I think you know, I think you've asked Dirk the Dice. Dirk the Dice, I think, had said, "Well, just why don't you just ask him on Twitter." Now, my account has been suspended. Really? It's been suspended. It was suspended within three seconds. I must have done something wrong, like <laughs> an illegal picture. I did a picture of a half-orc, and I don't know if it was copyrighted. Something happened, like, I was, my Twitter account started suspended. Hmm. Uh, basically. They know you're so controversial that you would be, right. you'd be a, immediately a problem. Bermansky and Trump. <laughs> so, But he's gotten back. You, have you, have you? Have you You're right, I need to apply for. You're right. I'm like, pay hey, your eight dollars, get your thing, and call Elon and yeah, say, I'm Elon, be- buddy, I need to get back so I can put benign posts of pictures up there. Right. So, uh, but you could ask him on. So, someone, someone had a Twitter account. Yes. If you have a Twitter account and you'd like, a, you like Ian and or Steve Jackson, I know I'm going to do it myself. But it'd be, probably be better if it was a little more uh, organic. Does that, stuff, does that stuff work? Like just out of the blue? Like, hey, will you be on our show? Well, I mean, it worked with work with Zach. He said, "Yeah." So, but you'd you'd have to have your game on. You'd have now. I don't know if they want to be queried in a, you know if you, after you read the book, are you going to like have three hundred questions on page twenty seven? You mentioned this, Ian. Probably. Okay. Well, maybe they like that. They so. get that treatment. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you, sir. I know it was two years. It was not your fault, but I appreciate it. It was such a surprise when you mentioned to me two or three times. I'm like, oh, I'm getting a book. Awesome. Support Grog Talk by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com backslash grog talk. All right. Well, good morning again. We are back and we have a new little figure. So um, we are very fortunate to have Zach from Xenopus Archives. So, Dan, you want to introduce our guest? Yeah. So as James mentioned, it's Zach. It's Zach Howard, who is the curator of the Xenobis Archives site. So, Zach, welcome to the show. So, what is Holmes Basic? Okay, so, so Holmes Basic was the first basic set ever produced for Dungeons and Dragons in 1977, and um, and prior to that, there was only the original Dungeons and Dragons set in 1974, um, and when, but by the time that um, the basic set was the Holmes Basic set was produced, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was in process. So when, when Holmes Basic was actually published, it actually uh, tags itself as a introduction to advanced Dungeons & Dragons. So, uh, like I just said, but nobody can hear me, it's great that you guys are having me on your show because you're all about advanced D&D, and Holmes Basic said it as it actually promotes itself as an introduction to advanced Dungeons & Dragons. And it was the only basic set that was ever produced that was a lead-in to advanced D&D. Yeah. Even if the rules don't completely uh, mesh with advanced D&D. Now, you say it promotes itself. It, it, you choose those words carefully. So, because you said, so what, the Monster Manual, Monster Manual is number one, right? 77? 77. 
And Holmes Basic, I think you said 77. Was was that the plan? How, how did Holmes Basic did it did it arise as a desire to have a lead into advanced, or did it just sort of get marketed that way? Yeah, I, I think during the production of it, 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 there was an evolution because the editor of Holmes Basic, and we can go into this in a lot more detail if you want, um, Jarek Holmes, he was working only. Um, off the original D&D text when he edited the manuscript for Holmes Basic. He sent that off to TSR, and at some point while they were producing the set, because they were also working on advanced D&D, they were like, we need this to promote our new product, not what we were you know, selling before. So they took, wherever he wrote Dungeons & Dragons in it, or original Dungeons & Dragons, he, they changed that to say advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, did you, do you know, did... Before he sent it in, you know, was the plan to still keep OD and D around, and or was Advanced D and D going to supplant it completely? I think TSR was cautious, and they, you know, they were selling lots of original D and D sets and products, um, and they didn't want to like just cut that off. And they continued to sell them for a number of years, even after um, Advanced D and D came off. Out. I think you know they just waited until the sales decreased before they took it off the market completely. Because you can you can look at TSR catalogs from eighty eighty one, and they still have a whole page of the original D and D stuff sets and uh, supplements. And 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 who was Eric Holmes? So he was a professor of neurology at USC, and he got into playing D and D. Well, I should talk a little bit about his background. He wasn't he wasn't just a professor of neurology. He was also a super fan of pulp fiction. He'd been reading stories, Robert Howard, Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith was a particular favorite of his. He'd been reading those since he was a teenager, basically, and he had had aspirations of being a writer himself. Um, he was also a fan of monster movies, Japanese toys, um, comic books. He had a huge comic book collection of, of Marvel, DC. Um, so he was sort of primed to be like a super fan of D&D. So when his sons brought home this game that they, they learned, they, and this was probably in like 75 or so, they had learned about it from other kids at school. Um, they, uh, and they, he, he was like, oh, this is like what I've been waiting for my whole life. So, <laughs> so he, became, he became their dungeon master after a little bit of confusion about how to actually play. They got going and he ran a campaign, especially his, his, of, of, his, of his two older sons, um, uh, Jeff and Chris, Chris especially, uh, and his friends were like the main players in the D&D campaign that he ran before working on the basic set. And one of his sons still goes to conventions, is that right, and talks about his dad? Yeah, Chris Holmes is a regular attendee of the North Texas RPG Con, and um, and I've gone to that uh, several times, and I've, and I've met him and um, talked to him about his... Uh, experiences playing with his dad in the 70s it was it was an exciting time for him and and was it you said that there was some initial struggling to learn about how to play the game was that initial struggle part of the reason why holmes then wanted to create a basic set yes exactly like when his sons gave him the original rules he didn't really understand like how you were actually supposed to play they ended up going for at least one session maybe two over to play with some other um, uh, players who are a little bit older. I believe they were at uh, they were either at Caltech or using the Caltech rules. The the Warlock rules is what 
there, there was a very early D&D supplement that was published in 1975 um, called Warlock. It was actually in a gaming magazine, and it clarified a lot of different parts of, of original D&D. And so when Holmes, uh, and it came out of Caltech, so it was out there in the California community. When Holmes learned how to play, they were using this supplement, so he naturally used it too. And they, they, when they brought the game back home and started playing, they were using the Warlock supplement as well. Oh, so that I know. So the Warlock supplement was different. I mean, there was four, right? There was four original books, right? There was, and this was yes. not what this was in addition to the four. This was a non TSR oh. fan uh, based publication. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and Errol Lotus in that crowd. That was a very that was a vibrant community out there, right? The California whole scene. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. So it also produced Arduin and RuneQuest and other. So, so how did how did you get involved with Holmes Basic, or gaming in general? I mean, mm-hmm. how did you start in the hobby? So, when in in or around 1982, uh, when I you know I became aware of this game Dungeons and Dragons, I think from seeing advertisements. I remember seeing the Monster Manual in a bookstore, and I you know I asked my parents for it. And um, for my birthday, they gave me a copy of the Holmes Basic set. And this, this, I believe, was in uh, early 1982. Um, and so, even though uh, Moldvay Basic would have been out by that point, I still got a copy of Holmes Basic. So I believe that you know they were still in some places. They were still selling the Holmes Basic set. <laughs> it was um, on discount. Were you were you a little were you a little di- <laughs> yeah it could have been uh, be honest were you a little disappointed when Santa brought you Holmes Basic? Um, no, I mean I didn't know about anything else. The, to me, this was just Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it just says Dungeons and Dragons on the cover, and I didn't know anything um, else existed really. You know, I knew there was other stuff like the Monster Manual, but I thought this was like what you started with. Uh, but I, you know, I I couldn't really understand how to play it based on that. My set came with the chits, the infamous oh, chits wow. instead of dice. Yes, that made it that made it even more confusing to learn how to play because the <laughs> rule manual throughout refers to dice, and then you get these pieces of paper, and you're like, I don't understand how I'm supposed to use this. Okay, I don't suppose you still uh, have the chit those chits, do you? No, because you had to you had to cut them out. They they came on a like a laminated sheet of paper, and you had to cut them out and put them in like cups or bags. So I had them all in a bag at some point, but then after I got dice, I just lost track of it. So. You didn't realize those chits would be worth lots of money. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much the cut-up ones are worth. I do have a, I do now have a sheet of uncut chits somewhere around here. But. Uh, so, so you, so no one introduced you to the game. You said you just you'd seen Dungeons and Dragons, and and you were interested in it, but you, but no one introduced you to the game. You just got the game. Yeah. Yes. So, so what did uh, you do? I was, I was interested in mythology and and um, and fantasy literature and stuff before that. So it was sort of like, you know, it's sp- and monsters like it spoke to me. Um, so I I didn't know how to play it. And I kind of just set it aside for like a number of months, and uh, until in the summer of 1982, uh, we met some new neighbors, and they had two boys, and I was sort of in between them in age, and they also had the home's basic set. You know, so to me that was just. Dungeons and Dragons, that's what you started with. And they were the ones that first I first started playing games with. Um, and they sort of showed me how you play. Although we when when they first started showing me how to play, they weren't we weren't really playing correctly either. We didn't even I, I think maybe we were using some D sixes, but like 
I didn't even see a polyhedral dice um, for a few months after that. It took me a long time to track down actual polyhedral dice. That's it. And how did you stay in playing with them for a while? Did that form a group? Um, no, I, yeah, we, I mean, we played, uh, you know, several times on and off over several months. Um, but it, it didn't turn into a regular group. But like a few years later, I started playing with an, another friend of mine. Actually, it was probably within a year or so. I ended up getting, so I only had the Holmes basic set exclusively for um, about, you know, till the end of that year. And then at Christmas, I got the monster manual. And then I got all the advanced D&D books, like basically in a year time period. And then, and did you, you switch to playing first edition? Um, yeah, pretty much. Oh. Yep. Although I think even when we were playing AD&D, it was informed by basic rules because, uh, you know, I don't remember ever using any of the complicated initiative procedures in advanced D&D. You know, we always did like roll a D6 and, and you know, which group initiative. And this is funny because so I, I thought I was going to do sage advice for James. So I looked up some of these questions and there was a question in here about what is the difference between, okay, and this is the expert says. This is not Holmes Basic, but I think this is funny that you brought this up. The question was, why are there so many contradictions between the basic and expert D&D sets in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons? And, of course, the answer is because... They're two different games. Exactly right. You are correct, sir. But I love, <laughs> but I love this last line. It's so, it's so judgmental. DMs and players should avoid mixing the D&D and AD&D systems at all times. <laughs> <laughs> we all were it was all a bit of a mishmash wasn't it i think for so many of us so um so why yeah why the love of holmes base i mean it's it, i mean i think we probably could sense the answer coming but so why why this love of holmes basic well i i view it as sort of a form of original D, &D. um and i i like the openness of original D, &D. it's not so uh um, structured as, and, and, you know, and I'm a big fan of advanced Dungeons Dragons too, you know, basically all of the D and D up through second edition, they play the same when you're playing them at the table. Um, and they're pretty compatible with each other, but like I, for original D and D, I kind of like the, um, the openness of, you know, it sort of encourages you to take it, make it your own rather than strictly following with the rules that are in the rule book. Um, so I, I view Holmes Basic as sort of one interpretation of the original D and D rules, like one way you can take it, because Holmes really edited that basic set um, to to be an introductory uh, introduction to original D and D, and the rules are most compatible with that. So, so um, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about that, because um, it strikes me that it sort of has one foot in the OD and D world. Holmes Basic does, and it has one foot in the AD&D world, right? So what are some of the aspects that are OD&D like, and what are some of the aspects that are AD&D like? Well, a lot of the things you might think of as being from, like, the the later classic D&D, the Mold Bay Basic and stuff, there's a straight line from original D&D through the basic line. So we have the, you know, nine armor classes, the lower hit dice for character classes, um, you know, like a fighter gets a D8 instead of a D10. Um, there's the 10 second. Holmes actually was the one that put in the 10 second uh, combat round into basic. So unlike 
because OD and D is really unclear. You know, the, the the strongest evidence is that it had a one minute combat round, which then Gygax used in advanced D&D. But Holmes used a 10 second round in basic, which then carried over to the bolt base set. And that's sort of the modern way, too, of having a very short combat round. And what, what about alignment? So alignment was shifting, too, right? Because so I was the monster mm-hmm. manual and I was confused about this, but the monster manual seems to have fewer alignments, and it was almost like the Monster Man was written during a period of transition toward the greater alignments, because you don't have any neutral evil. Yeah. I mean, the parent, was, we call it the parenthetical evil. Which we thought were tendencies, but maybe, we don't, I mean, but so, did, yeah. did, did Holmes basically play a role in the transition on alignment? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of, it was sort of a product of that transition period, because when Holmes edited the manuscript, he only refers to the three alignments of original D&D. So after TSR got the manuscript, they decided at, you know, at some point that they were shifting towards having more alignments. So Gygax had first published the ex- expanded alignments in Strategic Review. Um, so I guess they decided that they were going to be using that in advanced D&D. But he hadn't gotten the full nine alignments um, conceptualized, I guess, at that point. So both Holmes Basic has the five, has five alignments. The Monster Manual basically follows the same thing, but it's sort of, you know, it's sort of reaching toward, you can see them reaching towards like neutral evil, neutral good. That's what I had heard. Um, I was, you know, various things that the AD&D stuff was kind of glammed on to Holmes's manuscript because of the transition away, is that he, he really was focused on how to teach people OD&D, since that was the game he was from and using that, and that some of this yeah. other stuff was added because clearly, you know, when you read Game Wizards and some of this other stuff, TSR was wanted to build a new game to get away from that because then Arneson wouldn't be part of the deal. It's kind of, you know, and Gary, this would be the game that Gary built versus the game that he had to share with, with, with Dave. Again, I'm paraphrasing, you know, uh, John Peterson's great book on that. So uh, is that your understanding as well? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, Holmes basically came out in mid 1977 and, you know, it was almost a year before the player's handbook came out. So I don't know how much of AD&D had been like crystallized at that point. So if they had, if they had decided at that point that they were going to have, you know, like the 10 armor classes that are in the player's handbook, we might've seen that in Holmes basic. They might've added that in too, but we don't, we still, they didn't go that far in changing the rules of the Holmes Basics set to match AD&D. Do you know how much of a role, did, did Holmes have any role in the manuscript after he handed it off? So these AD&D changes that were made by TSR, I assume, by TSR, I assume we mean Gary. Yeah. Uh, did, yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Um, as far as I know, it, I mean, the most the most likely person to have made the changes was Gary. He, he said some in one of his writings that he handled the manuscript himself, which, but, you know, I can't be a hundred percent sure that like every change, you know, that he made it himself to the manuscript. They might've had somebody else that was, that was working there. But um, uh, edited some too, but. Do we know, did, did, did Dr. Holmes play any role in it after he sort of handed it off? Not that I'm aware of. And he did. Mm-hmm. He did. He didn't do any other uh, like official work for TSR other than writing a um, 
he wrote a, a Dragon Magazine article that was the um, Cthulhu Mythos um, with Rob Kuntz. Um, though Holmes wrote most of it. That was published in Dragon and later became the basis for the mythos in the Deities and Demigods. Oh, and and he um, and he did he ask TSR in advance if they wanted this, or did he just send them this? Hey, this is this clarifies and makes it easier for for people to understand the game. Um, the way I understand it um, is that he he sent a letter to Gygax, um, and then either and then I think Gygax called him and they talked on the phone, and he uh, that's where they came to this agreement. And I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any letters between them, so I don't have any evidence of what exactly they corresponded about. I don't know if Gygax sent him any of the AD and D stuff that was in progress or not. I mean, there's nothing in the manuscript that reflects AD and D. The only thing in the in the Holmes Basic that's in the manuscript that might possibly have come is there's a mention of a material component for the sleep spell that's a pinch of mm. sand. And that's something that there's no material components mm. in OD and D. So, and I, so I don't know where Holmes got that other than talking to Gary Gygax, you know, <laughs> right. as a kind of a flavor, but it, it's such a, it's such a specific thing. He might've just like made that up himself. I don't know. But do, do you, do, do, do we have copies of the original Holmes manuscript such that we can see how it was changed? Yes. Yeah. I was, I was given a, a scan of the Holmes manuscript uh, a number of years ago, and I have a series on my blog that goes through it in excruciating detail, like the differences between the um, manuscript as originally as he originally wrote it. And then it sounds published. like a read along. We need to do a series that you know, like they have books on books on audio. <laughs> yeah, books by Zach, and he yeah. can page seven, yeah. and you can just read it, and we can do commentary. We can watch him reading it and comment on it. Yeah. That sounds compelling. Right? That sounds then, amazing. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people would like that. So, Yeah, I think there's like 46 installments. So that, that's sick. <laughs> 2023 taken care of. Done. We're done. We're done. Yeah. So, so, oh, so that's how you know that Holmes, apparent, as best we can tell, he wrote the part about the spell component because it was in his original manuscript, which then leads you to wonder if he had a conversation with Gary and got some ad advanced information. Okay. I'm going to just repeat what you said, but I'm, I'm connecting the dive. It's very interesting. Yes. Yeah. So it's very exactly. typical. It's like, which is the author of this? You know, what the Dead Sea Scrolls. I feel like there's probably a PDF somewhere that has revelatory things. It's just fascinating. These well, kind of. Yeah, and archaeology almost. Well, it is, and what's interesting about it is, is that so he gives Holmes credit. I mean, Holmes doesn't get paid for this, does he? Uh, no, I don't believe he got any money. What he did get is a copy of every TSR product that was published after that for several years, like at least like three or four years. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting. And so, and it's, it's obviously it's by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, edited by. Eric Holmes. Uh, so, what what do you think Holmes Basic did well? Uh, well, I think it took the original uh, game and and made it like um, much clearer. Um, you know, he added a lot of um, flavor text to it. He added example of combat. I mean, the original D and D doesn't really explain combat at all. That's like probably the hardest thing to understand like 
So Holmes kind of gives it some general guidance on how you would conduct combat. Uh, it's not as procedural as later rules would be, where they have sort of a set of steps to do. You know, he sort of gives some general guidance, like you know, first we first spells will go off, and then missile fire, and then combat. Um, do you prefer? And that's what. That's one of the things I like about it is that the combat procedures aren't so procedural. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 certainly a simpler system. What are there any when when you play? Are there any rules like so? Do you do a mishmash? Like if you did first edition, if you played first edition, are there some things from Holmes Basic that you would take and you, despite what you've been told not to do by Sage Advice, would would you, <laughs> st- would you are there some things that you just you like? Yeah, Holmes Basic got it better. Yeah, I would. I would probably use. I, I like the combat uh, procedures that I use based on Holmes Basic, where I just I write down everybody's dexterity, the party, and I just go around the table in dexterity order, um, and just ask everybody what they're doing. I don't use declarations either. I got and now hold if I because okay, oh, there there were no declarations in original D and D or in Holmes Basic. That's right. There's no concept of spell interruption either. Interesting. And and if I recall on Holmes Basic, is that the one where Holmes Basic is it's is it only based on dexterity if you're within a certain amount? Uh yes, that's true. Okay. So that's, yep. I mean strictly strictly by the rules. I I tend not to remember that. So yeah. So, so for like, us, you know, as and and Zach was gracious enough to listen to our Musings, aka ramblings, about how we ran a home's base. I, I, I guess sense a lot of head shaking. Can you sense a lot from Zach when he's yeah. listening to us? Right? No, no. Holding no. of the head. No, no, I'm no, sure no. there's a wall that has his head going. No, it's totally wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, we. So he listened to that of of our. I've never run home's base. I never. I tried to read it a while back, and kind of like OD and D, because I was so. F- immersed in Moldvay first, or actually AD&D and Moldvay, it was so foreign. But, you know, we, Dan decided, he did it last year, we're going to do it again. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to dive into it. And, it. and taking a second read and really reading it to, because now I had to run it, it makes sense. I mean, certainly there's changes, and, you, and, and I certainly would have been hard if I'd never played D&D, but because I played D&D, it's no problem to run it. So my understanding is... To your point, it's very loosey. It's there's some you know general guidelines, but the way Holmes describes it, there really isn't a quote unquote initiative roles until they're in combat range. Everything sort of is happening. The DM, you know, you exp- you explain what you want to do. Is you know if people are running together and they're shooting and this and that. It's only when you engage with the enemy that's when you figure out the decks and whoever's decks is. If it's close enough, you roll dice. Is I'm paraphrasing. Is that's how he kind of describes it, which is cool because you can do a lot of things without having, you know, getting into this procedural step, which again, for me, 40 years ago, that would have been anathema. I wanted step one, this is what you do. Step two, because I had friends who were like, well, wait a minute, I was supposed to go now because my spell is three segments and your thing, you rolled a four on this. That's, they were very rules lawyery. And I like now older, I love the Hey, this is what would make sense, not the rule. Let's just follow through the process. So I've, I've rambled there, but what's your take on that? Is that basically our correct our understanding from it? Uh, yes. Yeah. I I don't have anything to disagree. And with. so you don't follow that exactly. 
sometimes. So, and because we've gotten a number of questions from people. So if you don't mind, Dan, I'm going to kind of, because the questions are, so our, our, our vast sure. audience yeah. has, um, we, you have a lot of fans out there. They're like, oh, thank God. Ask me anything. Yeah, so, um, you know, a couple of was, you know, parts you like about homes uh, or dislike about homes, you know, kind of things you, so things so, you've changed, like you said, you mentioned a couple of changes. So maybe a couple examples of that. So my absolute favorite thing in the rule book is actually the sample adventure, the Xenophis Dungeon. We totally agree. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's really the thing that like always stuck in my mind about, um, about the rule book after I moved on to advanced on dragons. I always remembered that little dungeon at the end. Um, so it's to me, it's almost like a little like weird fiction short story, the way it's set up, and then there's the, you know, with Zenip, the, the introduction part where Xenopus like disappears. Um, so that was what got me like when I got on the internet in the '90s, I got like a new copy of the Homes Basic Rulebook because my original one was missing some of the pages at the end. Um, and then at some point, I learned that Holmes had written uh, fiction as well, and. I, uh, I noticed, I read, I read the book that he wrote, The Maze of Peril, and I noticed that there were some similarities with that sample dungeon. So that was what sort of drew me all back into it. Um, I also like the flavor text in the rule book that Holmes puts throughout. You know, it makes it um, seem, it, it makes the rule book seem very, like, personable. Like, you know, that somebody, you know, that is enthusiastic about the game is explaining it to you. Um, and then, you know, I, I like the, I like the dexterity based combat. Yeah. And it's not ridiculous. All the factors. I mean, that is, you know, we groan every time, you know, and of course it's the game we love cause it's the game we started with. We talked about last night that I didn't know Holmes basic existed until five years ago, because when I played, you went to the bookstore, they had the Molde basic and they had AD&D. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like, I mean, I probably saw in Dragon Magazine other things, but Dragon Magazine was, I had a love-hate relationship with because if it was anything that wasn't canon, and I hate to use that word, clearly Holmes was canon, but it was something I didn't see, so I just assumed it was, I don't know, ancient history. So, um, you know, that that idea of this, this uh, the, the when every time someone wants to do unarmed combat, or you know, there's simultaneous initiative. We all groan because we got to figure out segments and weapon speed and all this other stuff. Whereas this, you don't have that. You just you got the higher decks. Boom, you're done. So that that's great. Yeah, and I I, I find that kind of combat works really well in convention games too, where you have a limited amount of time. Right. Um, so another question we had. We had a bunch of questions. So gonna rapid fire. Um, what do you do for campaigns? So again, if you're a Holmes aficionado, you, you start your campaign in, uh, with Holmes. It's you're, you've got fourth level characters. Do you go to AD and D then? I know I know on the site you have some rules for uh, advanced characters. So you know what's your prescription for that? So for myself, when I use higher levels, I use the original D and D rules because that's what Holmes was using when he edited the basic set. But um, if you're going to use advanced D and D you have to make a few more choices about the the mechanical stuff that doesn't quite match up, what you're going to do. Are you going to 
start with that at first level or are you going to change everything when you get to a higher level or are you just going to ignore it and continue with this the way homes basic is but just bring in like elements from advanced D. and i would say for us a long time we that's how we did we we used the mold wave rules because that's what we had and then we augmented it the flavor of the magic items the classes but at its core, we used the basic yeah. rules because it was just simpler. We didn't have to go through some of the things. Violation. Well, yeah, we were violating. <laughs> uh, you told me that's not canon, sir. That is uh, not from polyhedron, so I, don't, I can yeah. ignore that. Oh, okay. There's a question here, too. Is everything that appears in Dragon Magazine an official rule change or addition? The answer is no. But I think it's an entertaining answer. Virtually all of the ma magazine's contents are not official, excepting only those writings that are defined as official either by their nature such as most articles written by Gygax, which are, quote, automatically official. Ah, auto-official. That's power. That's it. He's like the great leader. We need, I mean, we do have a picture back here that you can't off-screen, but with your dear leader. Um, next question <laughs> is, of course, one of the more infamous um, uh, things from Holmes Basic is the weapon damage. It's all you know, similar to OD&D, and the rule of... Normal weapons get one attack per round. Larger weapons get every other round. And, of course, daggers get twice per round. So why isn't everyone just running around with daggers? And, you know, what, what, what's your thought about that? And, you know, is, is it just for flavor that people do it? Or did they, you know, just basically everyone ran around with daggers if people played Homes Basic? Yeah, so you actually had asked before, one of the, what, what do I not like about Homes Basic, my least favorite things? And that's one of okay. the rules. Sorry. Is, um, so that, and, and it's an interesting thing. It's a very small portion of the rules, so it's pretty easy to ignore it. I don't even remember seeing it when I was a kid. The, um, and in the manuscript, it's actually slightly different. Holmes gave two attacks to every normal weapon, not just daggers, but just in swords and everything, and, and every other round for... Um, for or, or, I'm sorry, and just one attack per round for two-handed weapons. So that still had the problem that that regular weapons were doing um, the same amount of damage as two-handed weapons, but it wasn't quite as bad as the you know dagger do, getting two attacks and the other weapons you know like a sword just getting one attack. Um, and it, it's a little unclear how. Holmes, like, where he exactly got that from. I mean, it seems like in the Warlock rules, everything does D6, but but um, some weapons uh, get to do multiple D6s, hmm. and they get, and then, so that kind of balances out the number of attacks that they get. So, he, it seemed like he was taking something from that, because the original D&D &D doesn't really specify how to conduct combat. Um, so, I guess he was trying to figure out some way to balance... I. I don't really know for sure exactly where that came from. I tend to just ignore it. I just use all weapons to D6. Um, for two-handed weapons, I tend to just give them a bonus point of damage Okay. to balance out. I mean, you have to balance out the lack of a shield in some way. Yeah. And somewhere, well, there, and, and there appears somewhere at some point a variable weapon damage, because I had a photocopy. Is it B2? B1. I think B1? Was it in B1 or B2? Which one was it in? I, yeah. So, so varial weapon damage actually first appeared in the Greyhawk supplement in OD and D. Holmes could have included that in Basic, but I guess he thought that was more you know, more more work, more yeah, of advanced. a more complexity. Yeah. So he 
you know, he had started with the original D&D rules where every weapon does D6, so he's like, let's keep it simple for basic like that. Um, in Now, variable weapon damage does not appear in the home's basic versions of B1 or 2. Ah. So, so B1 and B2 were first published originally for home's basic. Then they, each of the modules was then revised for Moldvay basic. And in the Moldvay version of B2 is where variable weapon to damage appears on the reference sheet. So B2, when it was published for Holmes, had a copy of the reference sheet that Holmes Basic had in the back. And when they revised B2 for Moldvay Basic, they revised that reference sheet. Awesome. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I thought they were the exact same. That's cool. So what, what, do you remember which adventure you got in your Holmes Basic? Did it come with B1 or B2? It was it was B two keep on the borderlands. Did you so. did you run that you, at some point then? Yes. As the yeah. DM or are you uh, or you had the other people run run the game for you? I I both played in it and and ran it at different times. Uh, now, yeah. I, it was so long ago. My memory is a little hazy on what exactly. You know, the good happened, news we don't know the truth, so you can make up whatever you like. That's what we tell all our guests <laughs> yeah. that when we ask for very. Do you remember the ambient temperature of the first time you played D&D? You can just make this stuff up. We're, we're totally fine the with that. The whole thing could be a lie. Right. Everything. Right. He could be just, he could be catfishing us here. That's absolutely true. But we fall for it all, so that's all. So should we talk about B2 briefly? Sure. Okay. Because So B, people obviously have, I think, strong feelings one way or another about B2. I, I get it. I'm not in love with it, but I know people do love it. And I guess I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. Are, what are your thoughts on B2? Well, I, I always love the, the flavor of the module. Uh, in recent years, I've actually used the keep more than the, than the dungeon itself. Um, though I, I may run it at some point. Um, yeah. I always thought the forest was the more interesting than the, than the caves, in all honesty. I liked that crazy hermit guy was out there. I don't mm-hmm. know. To me, the forest had more. To me, the caves were just sort of caves of just what you'd expect, whereas the, the forest seemed... Caves of... Instead of a cave of the unknown, there's cave of what you would expect. That's, well, that's... I mean, the caves of chaos. That's right. I mean, you know, so I don't know. So, um, so uh, James, any other questions before we launch in? Because I definitely want to talk about the sample dungeon. Yes. I, well, yeah, we got... We are... We got people... Yeah, lined up with questions. Got it. All right. There's like a they surge pay- of the internet is straining with they all go the for, people. They pay the bills. Yeah. So, um, ask sure. Me ask you anything. Okay. The so uh, the favorite rule that didn't carry forward from the manuscript to subsequent editions of Holmes. Do you have one like that? That was a question that someone asked. So something that Holmes put in the manuscript right. that was then taken out by taken TSR? out. Yeah, that didn't carry forward. Oh, that's tough. Because they more more of what they did was they added stuff to the to the rules. Like there is this there's a whole section on encumbrance that was added that Holmes didn't have in there. Um, Yeah. So uh, I can't I can't think of something that that Holmes put in there that was taken out like just off the top of my head. But if it comes up. I'll mention it if it comes if it pops so into my head. So the questions, uh, I, of course, I try to paraphrase it because the chat's there. But here's the exact question: What is your favorite rule from Holmes that did not make it in later editions? So I guess that's a change it. For example, his was the parry rule. So they had the parry rule that later didn't the way it was done there. So is there is there something that AD&D didn't have or something to that effect? 
Yeah, I like I like the the pairing role and concept. Um, I what I've found is that like it hardly ever gets used. I mean, I know there's even one in advanced D and D that's like used never even right. even less well known. Um, I I think the thing that I I personally like that's in homes that didn't make it to further additions is the dexterity based initiative, which we talked about before. Okay. Uh, Oh, and the other role I, I have to point out is the one that um, spellcasters can make scrolls starting at yeah, first level. Yeah, that's right. That's, um, that's probably the pop- most popular role among the wider like OSR. Like when people are like, "Oh, I'm going to use that rule from Home's Basic." Like, let's make scrolls like right from the beginning. So you could even have uh, a first level spellcaster uh, use their starting money to make a scroll and have an extra spell to start out with. If they have enough. Okay, which leads into clerics having no spells at at, at level. That's rough. What's that all about? Well, I think that goes back. So in original D&D, I think the cleric was supposed to sort of be between the magic user and the fighter. Mm. So they get more hit points than a magic user does and wear better armor. And and sort of I think sort of the idea is also that they get turned undead at first level. So that's kind of like their spell for first level. So... Oh, that makes sense. I I think when Gygax was creating the the um, the class, he was thinking about those things. All in, in original D anD D, everybody fights the same at first level, so you have to have another way of distinguishing between the classes. So he may have thought like, oh, if I give them spells, they're just going to be everybody's going to want to play the cleric because it's better than the magic user at first level. Well, that's very interesting because in AD&D, if you use the wisdom bonus... Right, you get three spells. Uh, up to three spells to you get it. right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, but but yeah. no one wants to be... I mean, I like being the clear, but I'm the guy who likes vanilla ice cream. No one... Or strawberry ice cream. You know, but no one really wants... To, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many people want to be the cleric in AD&D even though the cleric does get a lot of spells if they have a high wisdom, right? I mean, is it just because the spells aren't as cool as a magic user's? I think so, and like you know, you're you're often not casting your spells till after combat yeah. is over, like to, and everybody's just always asking you like that's it, that's it. And if you're like if you're like the cleric <laughs> and you're like, what spells are you taking? And you're like, yeah, I'm gonna take purify water. Anything but cure, anything but cure light wounds. You get the look. Yeah, I'm like, I don't work for you, dude. Yeah, I like, yeah. do your own work. Heal yourself, man. So, and then you come, and then the, like um, you know, there's a there's there's house rules where people, like you can swap out a spell for cure light wounds or something. So to encourage oh. the cleric to use uh, oh. their spells, like I played, I played in a uh, long running game um, with my local group. It, you know, it was mostly based on second edition D and D, and the dungeon master let us swap out at least at least you could swap one of your spells of each level for a cure spell of equivalent level. Um, yeah, and we just, I, I was just in a, you know, Lane's game. He was doing that. And that was the first time I'd seen that. And I was like, oh, of, a, of house ruling, which most of them I don't like. I don't even like my own, but we, you know, like fumbles and criticals that every, all players want fumbles and criticals. I said, that does solve the problem of the cleric constantly getting yelled at if they take anything but cure whatever. Because. How dare you take command? You know, because you, you want to do something fun. Nope. <laughs> you, you. So I, I, yeah, I, exactly. you know, I, this is the first time I heard that. So yeah, um, and 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 that's why people. I thought that was a good house rule. Um, uh, so keeping going with the questions because I know you want to talk about Xenopus. So the um, you know you mentioned that Holmes was kind of 
building a, you know, it's a, a love letter to OD&D to make it more palatable for people who never played and didn't have the history, right? So, but they, he mentioned, he brought the thief class in, which wasn't in the original classes, you know, the fighting man and this and that. So why was that, why yes. was that brought in, um, you know, and other classes not brought in kind of thing? Yeah, I guess, I guess it was just the, um, the idea of the thief was so archetypical that, like, even though it wasn't introduced until the um, the Greyhawk supplement, like Holmes saw it, you know, it was it was a fourth separate class. He he kind of picked and chose between the original D and D rules and stuff from the Greyhawk supplement. So that's why I talk about like Holmes Basic being like one interpretation of original D and D because. Especially once the supplements came out, like all, everything in them was optional, so you could create your own version of original D and D based on what you wanted to include. Um, so Holmes is sort of Holmes sort of lays a roadmap. Like you, if you go back to original D and D, you can see like how Holmes constructed this version. You could make your own version. You could leave thieves out. Um, do, you, okay. do you have Do you have any information as to what happened to the witch class? Right. So on page seven. Where Holmes, I assume it's not Holmes, I assume this is probably TSR, right? He's talking about the classes that are coming yes. in AD&D, and they mention the witch class. And, of course, other than in Dragon, as, as, as NPCs, we never saw a witch class. Yes, so Holmes wrote those paragraphs there, but in the, uh, in the manuscript, there's no mention of the witch there. Oh. And um, Gygax was asked about that on Dragon's Foot forums, and he seemed to have no memory of, of what that was about, like... So it's, it's, kind of, it's still kind of a mystery. Okay. Okay. Now, it, if you look down at the lower section uh, where he talks about additional character classes, Holmes wrote, you know, and it mentions the lawful uh, werebear and the, um, and the samurai. Holmes had those in there, but he actually had even more uh, examples there of stuff that you can include. Um, and I'll mess it up if I don't look at the exact text, but... There was a mention of a witch doctor there, so I don't know whether somebody, you know, it's possible that somebody, like, saw that and said, oh, well, you know, oh, witch is a good idea, let's put it up under the witch class. But, or, or there was some, you know, there, there was an NPC witch class published in Dragon Magazine um, very early on, author unknown. I don't know whether at the idea, you know, somebody at TSR may have been thinking that they were going to make a class based on that um, you know, idea. Yeah, and that's and that was interesting that Holmes he says that as the DM's discretion, a character can be anything his or her player wants him to be. And then there's this stuff about a centaur, lawful werebear. So and I guess that my sense is that was and I know in, in AD and D there's a section in the DMG right on the character as a as a monster. Right. But that strikes me as, as more of an OD&D flavor, right? I mean, that seemed to have been going away, right? When you played AD&D, James, if you had said, I want to be a centaur. So you go pound sand. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right. So that was definitely. So have you ever, have you ever had a pregen as a lawful werebear? Just because you're like, for like, you know, like, hey, it's, he says it. You know, I, I want to like have like a nice Holmes feel to it. Uh, not a lawful werebear, but I have had a centaur. Okay, that's. Yeah, I have, I have one convention game, uh, which is called In Search of the Brazen Head of Xenopus, which is a sequel to the Xenopus Sample Dungeon, and I I used 
the pregens for that are all characters from the D and D novel that Holmes wrote called The Maze of Peril. And he had in the town in that the the main characters uh, Boinger the Hobbit and Zareth the the elf. They encounter a centaur in town, and they talk to him, and they go on like sort of a little adventure with him. Um, so I have him as one of my pregens. Well, I think well, James, I think at GrogCon right. when you run your homes, when you run your I homes, like how you say I. This when, was your idea. Now it's become my. Well, <laughs> okay, the, let's talk about how this happened. So I, I know exactly how it happened. Right, you shanghaied me into this. Well, that's part of the story. <laughs> well, so I wanted to, so we always, always, it's like we've been doing this for 20 years, <laughs> twice, <laughs> so three times. So we, we do a Dwarven Forge game, and so we look for dungeons that are small and are not too crazy in, in their shape. And we did, we did the Tower of Xenopus, the home sample dungeon, of course. And I, I felt like it needed to be run in its original language, so to speak, right? I mean, if you're going to read a classic, you should read it in its original language. So I ran it in whole, with whole, sure. thank you. So I ran I, did, I didn't, who, who are, no one argued with you with that. Thank you, Zach. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I ran it in whole. It was your game. You ran it in Holmes Basic. I, I ran it in Holmes Basic. The commi- there was no committee on rule edition yeah. that... They had to approve it. You just did it. That's right. Okay. I ran it at Holmes Basic. And so now what we've, we've, just, we've decided to do is each time we have the Dwarven Forge game, it will be also run, it'll be our Holmes Basic game. And so that's why you saw the one most recently. But so, Jay, so, so next year yeah. you should have like a lawful werebear, a centaur. No, I may just take Zach's uh, follow-on to Xenopus, which you can read and do it yourself. Okay, let's not. There's no reason to be fighting. Or we can get Zach down here in October, September 30th through the first GrogCon 23, the Feast of Orcus. All hail Orcus! Um, we have a theme. Our theme is Orcus, the Feast of Orcus. We've renamed Halloween the Feast oh, of Orcus great. now, so that's what we're going to call. Um, so we just need to get Zach down here. Come down. I've already. I was ready See, priming him. So so basically, I put it on you. And now you're put, you're doing He'll, that to this poor the, guest. The, well, and we'll get Lane to get, bring all his Dragon Forge. I mean, it's a it's a fun. I mean, he has a ton of stuff, and it's just I, I don't it's know. A if crowd you saw of people. It's the only game where a crowd of people. A crowd gathers. of people shows up because he lays out the whole thing and he puts covers over it and he, we reveal it as we go through, and it's people so, love it. If I understand correctly, you're saying so you set up the entire Xenopus dungeon in Dwarf that's Forge. That's right. Now. Oh, that's great. I'd like to see that picture. Yes, I will send it. Now, I don't know that it ever got fully put together. I mean, it probably did. Lane had it all together, but as they, so he had two, the way Lane did it that year is he had two, he's a master. He has two, he had two tables. And so he did have it. I don't know if he took a picture of it all together. We'd have to ask him. He had it covered, and what? Because he may not have had it put together. I think he had everything labeled based upon, I think, probably the letters of the rooms. And as they went mm-hmm. to a room, Lane would come over and drop he it. He had them on like one by one uh, steel sections that he would he would draw. Oh, wow, yeah. But to Dan's point, he had a table with this all set up. So whether he had it all set up on the table or not, I don't. I don't remember. So that's that's yeah, what we did. It's a difficult dungeon to set up um, in in that format because it's the rooms are so large. So it. I mean, if you some people have it, but like the room A and the dungeon is like 120 feet. Yeah. Long. 
which would be like 24 squares if you're using five foot squares, like, and it's like 100 feet in the other direction. Dan, um, they were there. Lane, Lane has that kind of, he has that much dragon force. stuff. Oh, he does. And they were in A because, you know, I mean, everyone's going to go to A, right? So they were in A because they met the goblins. And what was great about it, too, is yes. they also went to M, which is where the water is. So, spoiler, right? I mean, but where the water is. And so that was very cool because he has water tiles and all this, and he had little boats. And it was, yeah, it was very cool. And so, if, if you do come to Grogcon at some point and you if you wanted to do Xenopus 2, you know, you know, we could certainly talk to you about that. So yeah, that was sure, that was yeah. very cool. So um, all right, James, any other questions before the last question? I, I'm sure there's been other ones because the chat's been right. going crazy. I'm trying to keep up with it. Um, <laughs> the uh, we're not used to this. Yeah, we're not, yeah, we're used to being silent, nothing out there. So, um, you know, what do you run today? I know we talked last night. Um, you know, what are you playing today? What versions you play, and that kind of thing. Okay, so at at convention games, and I'm going to be. Excuse me. Go ahead. No problem. Uh, it's a, I'm going to be. It's a very running uh, several convention games this year. Uh, I, I use my version of Holmes Basic, which is expanded with the original Dungeons Dragons. And, and what? And and you run? I assume you run the Tower of Xenopus, the original. Um, I haven't run that at a convention. Um, I've run my. I have a sequel version that I've run. Um, I'm not planning on running that this year because I've run it like a whole bunch of times in the last. <laughs> so that's few my years. next question. How, how many times have you run Xenopus in in your life? Oh, I'm not even sure. Um, but I, I do I do enjoy running it um, because every time it uh, it's different because of the circular layout. Like people always go to different places to start with. So um, I have a new adventure that I've been drafting on my blog called the Forgotten Smugglers Cave, which ties into the to the setting that the Xenopus Dungeon is in. Um, and I'm just about finished writing that, and I'm going to run that at um, GaryCon this year. In March, and then a local convention that I'm part of the group that's putting on called ScrumCon. I'm going to run that at ScrumCon as well. Okay, and uh, so let's let's. I'd like to talk about uh, Zeta because I think it's it's marvelous. I and and hello, hello. Let's see if mine's still working. Okay, cool. When I, when I got back into, and so, yeah, so Zach was just mentioning how he's going to be at GaryCon, and he'll be at ScrumCon, which is a convention that he helps put together. So, But not NorCon. Not NorCon or Orcon. Or Orcon. So, <laughs> so oh, where, did you, where, yeah. did you, where did you grow up, Zach? Uh, in the Washington metro area, okay. which is where I still live now. So I, I grew up near uh, Annapolis. Maryland. Oh, did you go to any conventions when you were young, back in the 80s? Um, only one time did I go up to, um, I think it was called Dragon Con in Baltimore, but I didn't know how the conventions worked. I didn't know you needed to sign up for games in advance. I basically, my dad just took me there and I, and I, I went to the uh, dealer's hall and bought like a, a book that was about all it for my convention oh. experiences, like back in the 80s. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had been more plugged into it and been able to go and actually play games. Yeah, but you know, but that's that's the way it was in the eighties, right? I mean we so we go through convention schedules from old Dragon magazines and you know, they'll say if you want more information, literally send a self-addressed stamped envelope. You know, I mean, <laughs> so it's not surprising that that happened to you, you know, because I wouldn't have known either. I think right. I would have showed up and I'm like, Oh, I can't Yeah, yeah. 
you had to register in advance and get a listing of the games and like you know register for games yeah or like re- register when you first got there and they were expecting people to be there the whole weekend yeah you're kind of you're like the guy who shows up to college and like all the classes are you're like what pre-register pre-registration <laughs> what what am i taking okay so i thought when i got back into D and I, I love this idea of, of, you know, unusual adventures off the beaten path. So I thought, you know what would be hilarious is to run the sample dungeon from Holmes Basic. Little did I realize that, you know, th- it, this has a, become a famous adventure. I just thought it was, well, it's just the sample dungeon. That'll be hilarious. I didn't realize it had yeah. become so, so popular. Um, and I just think it's, it's an amazing adventure. What is it? Because in many respects, it seems to me like you could look at it and be like, really? That's so hokey. Just, I don't know, you know, not very interesting. But it has this, for some reason it works, and it has to me this amazing charm to it. Um, And I think it works amazing as a first adventure, probably as a first adventure for people. What, What is it about that? Event, which was never called the Tower of Xenopi. I mean, that's not the name of it, right? It's just called what? Sam- sample yeah. Dungeon. Sa- it's the Sample Dungeon, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. what, what is it about? By, by the way, you're getting comments from people the way you're handling the, the, the ancient book is offending, is offending people. <laughs> uh, look at this, guys. Look at this. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, oh, sorry. I'm of, the, I'm of the school, and they came, yes, they did come together. Um, I'm of the school that, you know, it's not abused, it's used. I don't, I'm not a collect, and I'm sorry, this is a, Zach, can you get a cup of coffee, we talk about it. I'm not a collector, I'm a user, I use, okay. Well, you're, you're going to be getting death threats, and yeah. this is the same person who we thought was the trans-Canadian strangler, potentially, so you may not want to upset him. Zach? No, Zach is not the trans, <laughs> sub- trans-Canadian trans strangler. I don't know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> so okay, real quick side. One thing I wanted to say is people are going to get the wrong impression that the Holmes Basic had a detachable cover like a lot of the TSR modules. <laughs> oh, it's not detachable. <laughs> I just want to say it did not. Like you, it was The cover was stapled on there. But, the, but Zach, you should be proud of me. This shows you that I've been using this thing. I'm taking it to conventions. I'm running, Hol- right? oh, yeah. I'm running Holmes Basic. What is it about? This, ad- this adventure that has such charm? Well, I, you know, I mentioned earlier, like the intro to it feels like a short story from a weird fiction author. So that kind of sets up the whole mood for it. And then I, I think Holmes did a good job of kind of picking these, uh, you know, iconic encounters, but he also describes them really briefly. So like, it's easy to, uh, I mean, it's only, you know, how many pages is it for? It's only, uh, it's easy to read it and pick it up real quick, but you know he's got he's got pirates in there, he's got he's ape, got an evil ape, wizard with an ape, caged ape with ape in a cage, yeah. Got ghouls and, that you pop out to get the magic sword, the dagger that's flying around, yeah. and you got rats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the fact I've played it once, and I remember all those things. Yeah, and a lot of those things are, you know, I've found elements that seemed you know he drew them from weird fiction. You know, the uh, there were there's there's a Conan story, you know, with the ape in a cage. Oh, I didn't know that. See, I assumed it was like a uh, it was like a King Kong thing, but it's a it's a it's it's a Conan. Well, there's 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 that too. Yeah, um, 
but there rogues in the house is a Conan story Do, that has a you know sort of like a wizard with a ape who's like and and there's also Edgar Allan Poe story about a sailor who has a ape as a pet that's um do do you it, I don't want to write the story but it you know it isn't like 150 years old sure. like the ape is like people in town. Well, what I think is what I love about it too is the fact that Holmes. You said the entries are short, and Holmes doesn't provide a lot of explanation, which to me is perfect because that allows, in my opinion, the DM to make the connections they want. And that to me is always a lot of fun. I mean, trying to because you know if you're going to run an adventure that's been written by somebody else, but you're a DM, you're usually a creative kind of guy, and you've got your own ideas. And giving the DM, it seems to me, the opportunity to make connections with all this. To me, it's fun to make connections between an ape and... Why is there an ape in a cage? Why are there smugglers? Why are these goblins? Why are there... You know, yes. And, and, so do you believe... So in your mind, have you made a connection between these? Or do you alter the connections? Or do you just not make a connection at all? Um, yeah, I do... I do make connections. I even have like on, on my blog, um, I ha and in, I actually have a fifth edition conversion of the Xenopus dungeon that is on DM skill. Oh, okay. And, and I added a lot of stuff to it. And some of it is like what you're talking about. Like I, I have suggestions for like things to be connected with each other. I have a set of rumors. It's like, uh, 20 rumors that you can learn in Port Town that are all related to stuff that are in, that's in the dungeon, and it, it you know it'll you know cause the characters to investigate the dungeon in different ways based on what the the rumors that they know about the things that are down there. So what is the so can you give us uh, without a spoiler? Well, I don't know. Why I said without a spoiler. You can't do without a spoiler. So so what is so <laughs> so what is your like? What's going on there? Just for people who aren't familiar with this. So stop listening if you ever want to go through it. So that's right. Spoilers. You've got, you've got, and, and Zach will help us fill in the blanks. You've got a, so we know Xenopus was this wizard. wizard. He's, yeah. and just, right, the tower erupts in what, a green glow one night? Yes. And, and that may have come from a Lovecraft story. Ah. There's a, there's a Lovecraft story featuring a tower of uh, green flame. Very interesting. Okay. So green flame. And then uh, everyone, um, oh, then they went and they destroyed it, right? They bring the catapult out. They're like, destroyed it. Then they destroy it to, to rubble, right? Yes, because, and that's one of the neat things is like, so Xenopus Towers erupts in green flames, but the tower is still there, but then it's haunted. Right. People see like, people see like goblin figures like on Dan the roof Dancing in the moonlight. Right? Yes. yes. Which is yeah. kind of cool. Wait, that's, but that, see, that's, Jazz hands. I like, see, for some reason that works. Like, if I wrote that, people would be like, boo. But, for, you know, give me a break. How cheesy. And you've heard it. You've heard the boos. Uh, many times. At, at actual well, games I've run. Yeah. <laughs> the way they end. It's, it's, it's interesting because it doesn't quite fit, like, what you think about goblins. Are they actually goblins? Goblin-like oh. figures? Is it, is it, are they more like demon creatures from, like, Fantasia? You know? That's right. Maybe they're so. not even... That's right. I didn't even think about that. They're not even goblins. So you got goblins dancing... Uh, got, quote, goblins dancing in moonlight. You've got an ape in a cage you've got some other goblins that are there you've got a you've got a like apprentice wizard guy if i recall right at a desk he, he's well, working that, you know that's the thing 
there there's an evil wizard like it only thing it says about him is he's been trying to take over the dungeon level and i think in the beginning of the adventure it says something about other magic users have moved to the town since xenopus disappeared so presumably he's one of them um it doesn't really explain whether there's any relationship between him and Xenopus. Right, so we just don't know. And then you've got smugglers, and they've they've captured the poor... I can't remember what her name was. But... Zamunda the Lovely, isn't it? Oh, is that the... Oh, yes. Very... Wow. That's right, you went through it. I ran this adventure for you. This was terrible. They... What did you do? You took the... Go... <laughs> you, 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 you captured the goblins. You chained them together. And then you made them row out of the cave where the water is, and then you threw them chained together, didn't you, into the water to drown? Oh, that's a, that, oh was, that, was that the worst thing we did? Besides, probably not. No, that's horrible. That is horrible. I, I was a ho- horrified. Took a goblin because again, he, so the the theme of the show, a part, another theme is Dan when he DMs, he does a great job of humanizing. I hate to use that word. <laughs> Any goblins. He does a great job with goblins to the point where we've talked about there's little letters from the goblin wife to the goblin, you know, dear goblin, this is our 10th year anniversary. Looking forward to seeing yeah, you tonight. Yeah, because you search them. Right, we like always search them. a little lunch that yeah. said, like, have a great day or whatever. Yeah, there's a picture of him. And they went to Goblin World, and they've had, you know, with the little kids. <laughs> so the more he personalizes the goblins, the more we feel like we have to do terrible things to them, like... I think we bound them up one time, put oh, oil on them, yeah. and set them on fire and threw them in that room to clear out what yeah. was in there. Yeah, we've done terrible things. And there's a big spider. So, so yeah, so, so what is the, so what is, what's the connection put, in your you, opinion? In your, yeah, how do you put in it all your, In your universe between all of these different elements. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I have one overarching, like, connection between all of them. But, you know, you can, you can do something where you have the goblins working for the evil wizard that's in there. Um, so you can make little connections between, and then you can have rival, fa- or you can have them all as rival faction, which I, I think in in my notes that in the um, in the conversion I have, I sort of talk about the different factions that are trying that are vying for control of the dungeon. So you have the smugglers. One of the uh, the wizard actually has a charmed fighter for him that it says is, was one of the smugglers formerly. So presumably there's like you know some tension between the smugglers and the wizard. Especially if he's trying to take over the level and they're using it. Yeah, and I, I always felt that, and other people pointed this out too, that what's great about this is if you do this as a first adventure, it can you can then kind of go actually go into the U series, right? Perhaps, right? Yes. And make connections. So. Well, yeah. yeah, you you know, in, in some ways, U one is a, a a rewrite of this dungeon. Um, I actually found Don Turnbull, who was the co-author of U one. He actually wrote a column um, in a magazine in, that was published in England. Uh, he had he had a, a column, and in one of them, he mentions that the um, that the sample dungeon is an example of what he calls coherent dungeon design, where uh, as opposed to previous before this, you know, most D and D dungeons were just simply, you know, the mega dungeon concept where you just have a whole bunch of rooms with different monsters in them, and there's no. Um, there's no reason at all for like why they're there. So the sample dungeon is sort of the first step towards having like a, a reason for the dungeon, which is the whole introduction with Xenopus, like why why there's this dungeon here. So with U1, he sort of took it a step further. But in some ways it's a rewrite because you have the the 
the haunted house takes the place of the ruins of the tower. You have the dungeon underneath it. Um, and, and you have the dis- the missing wizard who's the alchemist in you one. And then you have the pirates that are using the caves underneath. Yeah. So it's kind of like, he, it's kind of like he said like, Oh, I see like a way I can take like these elements and make it make even more sense. Like and connect them together. Yeah. And um, take, you, you could run, you know, the tower of Xenopus as a mystery kind of thing versus uh, a dungeon crawl. Again, depending on your level of sophistication, it's, it's, that's what makes it so good. It's reusable. Yeah. Um, you can, you can be sent in there and you don't want to be. Like, you're like, oh, we got a mystery. You got to go check this out. You're like, what? We're first level. It's... Are you kidding me? All right, two hit points. We got lucky because we did, we did yeah. turn the ghouls and I was neutral so I could. Uh, oh, didn't you use the. Oh, yes, yeah. you used thing the ghouls. Thing one and thing two, we used the ghouls for a long time. That's true. We put it on your, yeah, because we didn't run it with basic rules. We ran it with AD&D rules. Right. Are there other. So, the way, my understanding is the way to identify. A base, a home's basic module is if the monsters have dexterity, because you need right. Yeah, I mean, at least the only the only TSR module that was ever published with dexterity in the stats was the original version of Keep on the Borderlands, mm-hmm. um, and then there was one adventure in Dragon Magazine, the Chapel of Silence, that also oh, had dexterity. The in the stats. That's why I mentioned it. I ran that. James is upset. Yeah. James is upset about that. Um, James. It's cool that you've ran that. I've thought about running that at a um, at a convention. I just haven't got around to uh, to prepping it. I've gotten more focused on like writing my own adventures. Yeah, I think that so. Chapel of Silence, um, Molly. Ooh, I can't remember her last name. Plant, maybe. Plants. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Plants. Mo- and you know, yep. she did another one too um, in one of the Judges Guild uh, ones called the right the yes. Treasure Barlot, which I ran as well. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, that's great. And I saw that. Yeah, and and. Um, yeah, I actually did some research on her, you know, because it was interesting. I just thought she was interesting, and and apparently she ran a game for like the neighborhood kids, and and, and her adventures are pretty. She ran Chapel of Science for the neighborhood kids. The kids are in therapy now. Right. So he's upset. He's upset <laughs> that there is a Chapel. Of, I, I think Chapel of Science probably would be a very good convention game because it does have. I mean, it's fairly. It's short, and it does have. A, yeah. a, it has a nice hook at the beginning. It has a clear. Uh, goal. Uh, he was upset. Okay, I'm upset with a few things. Well, it, I never got to do the silence part, which was disappointing. And and I don't. Well, want you to got the silence. The characters are dead, so they're silence. They don't talk anymore. Are you upset? Are you upset about the vampire? Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And the uh, fornicating trolls and. The, oh yeah, right. That upset your yeah your sense of it. Your, I was I was rude. offended. No, I was offended that trolls I, were yeah, dead. I haven't looked at it in a while, so I don't remember all the details. Well, this but, is for first to uh, third level. So, so Dan wasn't a DM when he back in the day. He he wanted to start a game just real quick. He became a DM. He did B two first, which of course, if I would have told him, don't do that because it's a giant right multi weeks. Uh, he has AD and D players who are trying to you know push everything by him. So he so he starts a new campaign. And he's going to pay back the uh, the poor players <laughs> by running all these obscure judges guild weird things: <laughs> the Chapel of Silence, the thing of Barlow, the Lichway, the this, the T- Tower of Xenopus. All what was the other one? Uh, the one with the scrolls that, that that was the we found all these scrolls with like delayed blast fireball and I can't remember because it was either O D and D, Holmes Basic, Judges Guild random gonzo things and so here we are first level characters yeah. there's a vampires there's 
the you know the and it's the poor poor gnome gets sacrificed on the altar by this thing. So again, I saw this burned in my memory. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'm like we 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 did the sounds of silence, the song silence to, to the chapel of silence. Well, why are you why are you complaining about t- uh, treasure bar law and it was a total party kill? Yeah. That was that was the illusion. It's a right. high level. It's like a sixteenth level illusionist or right. something against the. They're all terrible. It was one right after another. It was high body counts. I'm like, this was a nightmare. So anyway, I digress. Yeah, that was, that, like, uh, she seemed to have really taken to heart the Holmes Basic, like, um, you know, low-level characters, high-level monsters, and, and like, high-level magic items. Like, it's not really, it's not, like, later Basic, it was all like, let's scale everything levels one to three. But in Holmes... He wanted. He said he wanted to preserve the flavor of the original rules, so he kept a lot of the high-level monsters in there, so that um, I guess people would be exposed to them. But um, you know, so he has vampires. He has purple worm. He, he felt like he had, to, yeah, purple worm. Mm-hmm. Like, and Holmes actually used the purple worm in his own campaign on the first level of the dungeon. There's a purple worm roaming around. Oh, wait! And you just got to run. <laughs> oh wait, but it is wait on which which adventure? Where's the purple worm? His own. Oh, I see. Right, not not Xenopus, but his own. Yeah, yeah his own personal mega dungeon that he ran um, for his sons had a purple worm on the first level, and then he memorialized that in the book that he wrote, The Maze of Peril, where the characters Boinger and Zareth encounter the same purple worm, like on the first level of the dungeon. Okay, yeah. You know, so but it, you know you can hear it coming, so you just got to stay away from it. You know, Gary put in B, look, and, and so Gary put, what, a white in B2. There's a white in B2, and so yeah. you guys, you went. Oh, uh, this, this is another classic, AD. So we, uh, <laughs> so just real quick, since I know you're like, oh, good, we can hear their terrible stories. But, right. He's, uh, he's, 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 he's running B2. Of course, I've played and ran B2s, but so I'm sitting in the back. I just joined his group. The, re, the way we met was he, him and his friend created a meetup group in person because he wanted to play first edition, play old school games. I decided after you know, 30-something years, I'm going to start playing again. I look up Dungeons & Dragons, Central Florida, and his meetup pops up. So I show up I'm like after the third session. I take over for one of these guys so we don't have to waste time. I'm the, pal- I think I'm the paladin that wasn't there. We're, I know exactly we're in the dungeon. We're going to this thing. We're going to the crypt. I'm like, oh, crap. This is where the white is. Now, I can't say anything because I, but, so they're like, and most people hadn't played it, so I didn't want to spoil it. So they're like, oh, let's detect yeah. evil. So I detect evil. Now, I know the white's in there. So I say, oh, I'm detecting evil. Mm, evil. And he goes, it's moderate evil. I'm thinking, moderate evil? <laughs> There's no way this is moderate evil. It's not a vampire. Come on, it's not a vampire or a lich. Right, so he was using the absolute scale of evil, and mm-hmm. we were using the relative scale. For us, a white first-level character is... is you should have asked what scale I was I, using. I, you know, I didn't calibrate the detect evil to the right thing. So, of course, we opened the thing, and, and later we someone reviewed... Uh, ta- so, you, what, did you go to Dragon's Club? No, I didn't. Lane posted on Dragon's Foot because something happened. Like, uh, what, I can't remember what the question was. If you're multi-class, class, and if you went to zero level do you, uh, on one, do you can you still adventure? Right, and so he gave the hypo, and someone said, "Well, if you were a first level, and the DM, my DM, put a a white in the adventure, I punch him in the nose." So I've got people on 
dragon's foot, saying they want to punch me in the nose. And then someone says, <laughs> well, you might as well punch Gary in the nose because Gary put it in there. And that's, of course, you know, I mean, what a shock that that's something like that. That's where the discussion devolves. So like now that. we have moderate evil. So when we, we have to ask what kind of evil it is, we have to ask very specifically <laughs> what that means because we were there. But yeah. um, I do. We do have another question. I'm sorry. Fun. Go ahead, Zach. That's why we play for stories right. like that. See, you know? there you go. You should be thanking me, James. You'll never forget that. For no, the rest it's, of your it's life. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that, though, is that we're learning, right? So, and as Zach has pointed out, that's interesting. I mean, Zach points out that that was sort of like a Holmes, this stuff with the vampire yeah. was a very Holmes basic kind of thing, which I guess was also kind of like an eight. I mean, then there's famous OD&D story, right, where... Well, one of the very first games, when they were a Balrog, it, like, I mean, I mean, one of the very first adventures ever, ever with D&D, right. there's a Balrog there. And so this idea of you're overpowered, and I guess you're supposed to run, is, is very old school. And so yeah. that's, that's yeah. what they see. Yeah, and you, got, you guys did that in your game where you had a, I was impressed to see that Balrog in the, <laughs> uh, in the, in the photo that you posted on Twitter from the, was, the, was that a home basic yes. game? Yes, so what we did, yeah. well, it's home, we used the home basic rules. We decided for this year, or last year, this year, we decided, hey, what would happen, you know, we, 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 we had someone decided, most likely Dan, that we wanted to do a party of all dwarves. Well, that's clearly, that's clearly me. Right, he wanted... Yeah, which I, I think thank is awesome. You. Well, it's, and, and you know, it's, if it's the Dwarven Forge game, let's have it all be dwarves. Right, so it's... All dwarves. He's done things with all gnomes. It's some fascination with mono race uh, parties. Um, so we just said, well, let's pretend. Let's make the scenario. What would happen in The Hobbit if Bilbo didn't go with? Them? And that—that that was you. That was me. I'm yeah. like, yeah. If there's going to be all dwarves, they're going to the Lonely Mountain. They go talk to the dwarf. Because basically, this is the difference between you and me. I'm like, hey, you know what? Be charming. Is there all the wars? Is that charming? Like, okay. And then you're like, yeah, but they don't get Bilbo, so they all die. Right. They that's die. that's your that's what you do. We're fucking no thief though. Yeah. Now they have no thief, so there's twelve dwarves going in, or thirteen. Well, they're supposed to be thirteen, but we had twelve. Uh, and so we recreated, quote unquote, the Lonely Mountain. And I'm like, so we went to Lane, the guy, our friend, who has all this dwarven forge. He has this giant thing of a Balrog. I'm like, well, we got to put a Balrog in there. If you've got this statue, even though it's not, you know. It's Lord of the Rings, and he's not in the Lonely Mountain, but we got to put it in there. So that's how the Balrog comes in. So I went to the OD&D and found the Balrog stats and put it in there. Because you see that picture of the Balrog and the dwarves fighting. It's amazing. I mean, that's, that's why you go, you know, that's what we talk yeah. about. You yeah. go to tournaments to do things that are cool that you can't, you probably won't do with your, you know, your normal campaign. Because yeah. if they die horribly, a lot of people won't be very happy if you kill half the party with, uh, with that. Yeah, and that's totally in the spirit of Holmes Basic, having the high-level monster and the low-level characters. Oh, and, the, and you know, and, and putting in the you know the demon slayer sword like right next to it, so you, if you found it, you could get lucky. And I put. I, oh yeah, that's actually something that Holmes suggests in the intro to the monster section. Like he said, you know, he sort of acknowledges that some of these monsters are going to be way too tough, but he says like you know, you can have a special weapon that can kill the monster, you know, or you could scale the monsters down to you know, to make them easier. Yeah, uh, we did get another question. Hold on. I, the, the questions are fast and furious here. Uh, does Zach incorporate those comic advertisements by Wilbury or Willoughby and their story? 
that make any sense to you? Uh, that... I'm not sure. Are, are they talking about the uh, the advertisements that ran in comic books that were for Dungeons and Dragons? So. Yeah, the first one of those mentions the um, uses the name Xenopus in it. Like it says that the players are exploring the ruins of Xenopus Castle. Okay. Um, so that might be what they're yeah. referring to. I haven't personally used anything, any elements from those comic strips in any games that I've used, but they are fun to read, and I wish they had continued the series longer. Yeah, I didn't know anything about them. That's they, cool. Yeah. yeah, somebody, if you go on the internet and search, you can find like somebody has compiled all of them together because they continue from one to the next one, though the characters don't always look exactly the same. There was a, the artist changed between a oh, few. Okay. Of them. So, you know, that kind of is a good segue into. How did you start Xenopus Archives in the blog? What made you, you know, there's a lot of people who think about D&D, love the game, never do something like this. What made you decide to go from being an admirer to uh, building a site that now, you know, lots of people love and enjoy? Yeah, I mean, it was a slow process. I, I, I talked a little bit earlier about how I, um, you know, I got, I didn't play D&D for a while, but I got the... Um, rule book again and then i read holmes book and i just got interested in looking at the different connections between like you know, there was just a lot of interesting things that i felt like people didn't know about you know about how 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 did holmes get involved and in, you know he was an outsider how did he get involved in this like um and then i started pl actually playing DD again around um 2010 and then I started that. That kind of got me even more like back into the world of Dungeons Dragons. So I started the blog. I think like you know a year or two after that. Um, so it's been going for almost ten over ten years now at this point. So yes, yeah, yeah. I like writing, so it's a good outlet for for writing. And so you have the website, which has content. And then you have the blog, which is kind of where you update and talk about current. Not I won't say current events, but your musings on things. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, the the blog is more um, I uh, where I post stuff as I write it. Like the, I need to work more on the site. Like I I worked on that a long time. That was I actually made that first and then started the blog. But like, and I've added to it over the years. But I there's certainly sections of it that I need to like revise and like add more to. But as I write new things, I tend to post them um, just on the blog. So when did it become? You know, something you did, you know, because a lot of people, they throw this stuff into the void and hope someone looks at it. You know, you, how, how long did it take before people really were citing it and talking to you? And then obviously you've been, I'm sure you've gotten stuff because of you've become like the, the keeper of the flame when it comes to Homes Basic and other things. How, how long did that take to generate? Uh it, you know, it just slowly grew over the years. Like um, in the early days, I was pretty active on um Google Plus was like big, like when I started the blog. So I would post stuff on there, and um, and people got to know it through Google Plus. Um, and then, because I had the the site and the blog, when uh, that was how I was able to get a copy of the manuscript. Because Holmes passed away in 2010, and then at some point in a few years after that, one of his his youngest son Tristan was was selling off some of his stuff to a uh, a toy store in Portland, Oregon, where Holmes had mm. lived. And the, so the owner of that store, Billy Galaxy, he came into possession of several copies of the manuscript. Because um, Holmes, we actually have the um, the photocopy receipt that Holmes uh, got from USC, where he got the uh, manuscript copy. Wow. And, 
and and he had a number. He may have had ten copies made. I don't remember the exact number, but he, um, you know, he sent it. He sent one or more off to TSR, but he also kept a number of copies himself. So Billy scanned one of these and sent it to me. So you know, because I had the blog already going, he knew that it's something I would be interested in, and then. And then doing that series on the blog also like got me a lot more attention too. Um, can can you talk a little bit about the box cover? We haven't talked about it, right? The famous, the iconic, oh, yeah, yeah, the iconic yeah, cover. Yeah. So so what do you know about it? So the artist is David Sutherland. He was one of the first artists to uh, work for uh, to be like a staff artist at TSR, um, and he. Uh, and, you know, it actually, it's just ending now, but you can actually see that painting on display as part of an exhibit called Enchanted. Hmm. Um, so last summer, not, not this year, but the year before, I actually went up to the Norman Rockwell Museum and saw the painting, the actual painting that he did wow. in person as part of an exhibit that that museum organized. And then it's been at two other museums since then, but and right now it's in Flint, Michigan, but I think it's ending this weekend and they haven't announced if it's going anywhere else. Uh, it's really cool to see the painting in person. The colors are really vibrant. The um, I was expecting it to be really big. It's only a slightly larger than the actual box cover itself, which is kind of amazing. No, that, that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's so iconic. I mean, yeah, so my T-shirt version of it. I'm oh, sorry. There you go. But um, so, you know, again, we've appreciated your time today. So what are you doing today? I mean, what's what's. You mean like this afternoon? Well, right, this afternoon, this week, you know, he's driving some of you. Know, okay. What's your lunch plans? So, you know, what's in the, what's in the well, future that, for the website and, and, you know, conventions and this type of things that you're working on? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just about finished writing uh, The Forgotten Smuggler's Cave, which is a, it's going to be an adventure for Holmes Basic that ties into the same setting as the, um, as the Xenopus Dungeon. So there'll be, you can use it if you're if you run the Xenopus dungeon. You'll be able to have this, and there's lots of connections to the to the town of Port Town. Um, I'm going to be playtesting that next weekend for the first time, so I got to finish writing it this week, um, and then I'm going to be running it at GaryCon. So if there's anybody out there going to GaryCon and they they can try to sign up for it, I've already submitted it to GaryCon. Cool. Um, so it should be up on their schedule. That's in late March, and then I'm going to be running it at ScrumCon which is a local convention in the Washington, D.C. area. If anybody out there is, that's listening is in the Washington, D.C. area, that they can attend that. That will be April 8th, um, and I'm going to run it there as well. Um, and so if, you wanna, if you're in the Washington area and you want to get more info about ScrumCon, just go to ScrumCon with a hyphen between Scrum and Con, scrumcon.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list, and we'll send out more information about that convention, like re registration information and stuff like Great. that. Because you, you should sign um, up for games in advance, is my understanding. Yes. <laughs> Don't just go to the convention. Don't have... I mean, it's fine. It's fine to come if you just want to see what the convention's about. But if you if you're expecting to actually play in games. Uh, I mean, people do sometimes do pick up Get games out. at conventions. That's but what I was going to say. If it... You have to learn the hard way. Get out. Yeah. I see there's a chair. No. You didn't <laughs> sign up. Out. Be gone with you. Yeah. Um, and if you're – the other thing I wanted to plug is, is, is which I mentioned before, is on the on DM's Guild, I have a fifth edition conversion of the – called the Ruined Tower of Xenopus, and it's only $2.00. And even if you're even if you don't play fifth edition, I've got lots of extra information in there 
for the Xenopus dungeon that you can use with your old school games. And I even have on my blog, I have notes for like retro converting anything that's in there that like is directed towards fifth edition to use with. So I have, I have a wandering monster table for the dungeon. Purple, um, purple worm, vampire, purple worm, vampire, purple worm, vampire, <laughs> vampire. That, that wouldn't fly in fifth edition. <laughs> Did, now, now. Min, minor vampire, uh, small, yeah. extra small yeah. purple worm. Do you have since since you only got the chits way back when? Do you now have a set? What we're going to talk about that? Oh. oh, I didn't know that. What I was, was there a memo that I didn't read? What do we do at the end of the show? <laughs> oh, get out! I'm so excited. Yeah, we don't prep anything. I, I know that's a shock. I have a script. You don't pay attention. You have an outline. Do you look at it? <laughs> I still have to look up the access code every day. Every time I come here. Where's that access code? How do I get it? Wow. All right. Now I'm excited. Wow. Yeah, we'll, oh. we'll get to that. Wow. So if you could, Zach, send me the links to anything you want. We'll put it in the show notes here. And, of course, you... He's joined our Discord. Okay. He's in our Discord. I did notice that. So we, if you yes. want to set up a channel for ScrumCon, you can do that as well. You can. We also have a thing for that, so you can post whatever you'd like up there. And if you need a channel made, just ask myself. Um, uh, you know, send me a note. We'll be happy to do that. We, we, so our vast yeah. legions of members of the Grog Empire will be happy to promote that as well. Yeah, I should say also that ScrumCon is one of the things is it's not just a role-playing game convention. It's supposed to be a balance 50-50 of role-playing and skirmish wargaming. So oh. if that's something that, you know, your listeners are interested in, we also will have that available. Yeah, so if you if you want another thing to maintain, we'd be happy to set up a homes channel in our... Again, we, we're, we're, as we talked about uh, last night... You know, anything before May of 1985 before is totally legitimate. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 own it, I run it. And, and like Zach said, this is, this is a, uh, what do they call it? a gateway drug to AD&D. Yes. So we're fine with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, so the last question, and then we'll roll. Uh, yeah, I, I should say I, I did have an idea a long time ago, which I've never realized is to, um, you know, or, I, you know, I sort of had this idea like, Let's edit Homes Basic to make it completely compatible with AD and D. Like, what would you have to change in it? That's not. That's that's a pretty good idea, actually. Don't you think? Well, again, I, I, I'm I'm happier with. Again, if I knew about Homes Basic, I probably would have played it because my problem with Moldvay, and I have my original Moldvay, which again, you should, you want to talk about how ghetto we were back in the day. Um, in order to keep it together. You know, it had the little hole bindings. I use bread, you know, the bread ties to keep it together. Yeah. So there's my, there's my original. I was so poor, I couldn't That's afford a, tape. I didn't have tape. I, I used ties. Tape. That's how poor I was. So, um, you know. And, and I, you know, I love Moldvay Basic as well. Um, he, he actually used, like, you know, Holmes Basic as kind of a template for, for making Moldvay. But, you know, I... You know, I love everything from that era, so I like the aesthetics of Moldvay Basic as well. They're all Otis art. Well, that's you know that that is awesome. But the problem with it is it says Basic Rules, and like we talked about, I didn't yeah. want to play Basic Rules. I was twelve. I'm a big boy. I want to play Advanced. Why would I play Basic? You want a big boy pants? I want big boy pants. <laughs> I want. Yeah. Even though this was way better, you know, and, and from a understanding the game and you could do everything and. And gnomes were monsters. It was uh, exactly how it should be. But anyway, the um, so again, it was a great having you on today. I thank you for your time. 
Uh, again, this is technically a talk show. So if you are so bored in the morning and you want to come on, you can call the grog line. We we do have random guests come on and anytime you want to promote something. So, um, the last thing is we ask our guests to roll a D 10 to one being, you'll never want to come on again. And 10 is awesome. And so he said, I, I asked him to prep him. Do you have dice? And he showed me those dice. Yeah. So are those? So those are original. I'm assuming original Holmes basic. Yeah. Now I've got a few extraneous things in here, but most of the dice in here are are Holmes basic dice that I got. These aren't my dice. Like I said, I had chips chips when I was a kid. These are from sets that I bought about 15 years ago, and I've even got one of the pink D20s. Oh. Those are and most of those are in very good condition. It looks like. Yeah, the the pink D twenty is actually a little deformed, but the other ones are in pretty good shape. So, I, if your listeners don't know, the Holmes Basic set came with a set of five dice, um, which I'll show it right here. I don't know if I can hold them up <laughs> in a way you can see them, but yeah. there they are. Um, and they, one of the interesting things is the twenty sided dice. Is actually a, a D10. Yeah. It only goes, you know, from 1 to 10 twice. Um, so you're going to have me roll a D10. I'm going to use this Of course, this whatever one. you... It's a yeah. 20. Right. Yes. Uh, it's a... So if you wanted to roll D20 with this, you either had to mark half the dice, which a lot of people did, or you rolled a control dice with it. So 1 to 3 would be 1 to 10, and then 4 to 6 would be 11 to 20. I didn't know there's a phrase. That's actually that. control dice. We learned something. We need to call it the yeah, control I, dice. Yeah, I picked. It doesn't say that in the rule book. The rule book actually um, mentions that you can do it that way. But the um, I've I've just seen that on the internet as a term. I don't believe anything on the internet. So, but I'll I'll try to. Uh, since he said it, I'll believe. We're it. on the internet. Oh, barely. barely. <laughs> and TSR actually sold these separately together as percentile dice. Oh, okay. Before the D, before the D10 was invented. Yeah, I mean, the 10-sided D10. What was your local gaming shop when you were growing up that you'd go to to get stuff? Uh, I mostly got stuff at the mall. Yeah, books of course. Wal- you got it. Me too. Walden Books. Or, absolutely. Or even before that, there was a, we had a local toy store chain that was kind of like Toys R Us called Juvenile Sales. That I would, I Juvenile would Sales. That's, that's a good name. That's a good name. <laughs> Did Billy Galaxy run that? I just liked that name. I, I just wanted to say Billy Galaxy. You didn't pick up on that? Yeah. No. The guy's name was Billy Galaxy, you said, right? Yes, Who yeah. owned, the, who bought yeah. the home stuff. That's his last name. Oh, Billy Galaxy. I did not know that. Yeah, he has a toy store in Portland, Oregon. Mm. I went, uh, which is a great store if you're ever in, in the city I did there. not know that. He has all kinds of vintage toys, oh. you know, including like old Dungeons & Dragons toys from the 80s. And um, so he bought, he bought like Holmes' collection of stuff, including like thousands of miniatures. Very, very nice. Holmes was really into minis, and he had a huge collection of minis. Wow, so he was too, just like the Minneapolis crowd, right? That was very much so. Yeah, and Holmes, so Holmes had his uh, gaming set up in the basement, and he had a uh, table that was painted with chalkboard paint, and he would draw the dungeons in chalk on the table, and then they would use minis oh, on that's that. Pretty, so what happened, I know we're just about, this is the way the show goes, we're just about to end, but one last question. Yeah. <laughs> So wait, what happened to Holmes? I mean, Holmes, we don't see much of Holmes in 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 D and D stuff, right? After Holmes Basic. But you said but he lived to twenty ten. Yes, yes. So he 
So he continued to write some stuff. Like he published some, there's Dragon Magazine short stories that he published in the early 80s with Boinger, The Hobbit, and Zareth the Elf. Um, and, he, and he still wrote some articles for gaming magazines. But, you know, by the early 80s, I guess, like, you know, TSR had moved on from, you know, it was becoming much more of a business and less of a hobbyist enterprise. So also his sons, you know, I think his two older sons moved on from playing D&D. Um, he remarried and had and had two additional kids, so he had two young children in the '80s, and then he oh, also um, moved. That'll do it. You don't say anything more. It's mystery <laughs> solved, right? I mean, are you kidding me? He has two young kids, a bit older in life. Yeah, that's over. But I'm sorry. Yeah, then he said. He, then he moved. Yeah, he he also moved out of the California area to uh, first. He moved to New Mexico. I think his wife was a doctor on an Indian reservation there, and then they moved to England for a few years. And then he later settled in Portland. So um, I think that kind of all like disrupted his like connections and like, you know, regular game playing. Well, like a lot of us, he, you know, it, it kind of came and went. There was a season for it and then you have to come back. So, yeah. Well, and I think as Dan Collar said, uh, who he had on, who, who uh, is from England, said, what, by the mid 80s, the ND was kind of right. on the way out, you know, for a lot of them, you know, for most people. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So uh, I guess we are ready to we're ready to see how good of a show this was. D- uh, so roll your D10 or D20 and uh, tell us what you got. Okay, here it goes. Official roll. Three. Three. Well, <laughs> it's not a one. The last two times we got a one. So that's three times better than our average show. See how it spun that? Oh, you did well because I didn't know what to say. I was just going to – I was – I was I was speechless. Okay, the last show, Christmas special, yeah. was the dice one. never lie. Exactly, the okay. dice never lie. So what's interesting about it is that phrase. So I thought I was I thought would always be saying the dice don't lie, and I thought I was like, wow, how clever am I? And then I'm reading a Holmes, right? Holmes wrote an article somewhere, and right at the end, he said something like, he didn't say the dice don't, I said something, I can't remember what it was, the dice never lie, maybe or something, but and I don't know if you've, and, and, and I'm like, well, of course, yeah. yeah. So he, I, apparently it wasn't me <laughs> that came up with this, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he mentions that in an uh, uh, article that he wrote. He actually wrote an article for Psychology Today um, called Confessions of a Dungeon Master. Um, so that's one of the other things that he wrote that's fairly well known, or at least, you know, back in the day, people outside of Dungeons and Dragons may have heard of that. Like, and you know, it was one of the things that helped expose D and D to like the general public. Um, so that was one of the phrases that he put in there. I don't know if he came up with it himself. He may actually be quoting somebody else when he says it in there. I can't quite yeah. remember. What time frame was that article from? Uh, I I believe it was published in nineteen. Okay, wow. So that's super early. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's and for some reason I came upon that and read it. It's pretty short, and so it was easy to read, and it was very interesting. And and yeah, there 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 was my my phrase. It wasn't me, but so. And he also, if you have any in- readers who are interested in tracking down old books in in uh, bookstores or on eBay, um, he also wrote an entire book about fantasy role playing games, which was one of the first, if not the first, book sort of covering the whole role playing game phenomenon. So that came out in 1981. It's just called fantasy role Amazing. play games. Because we, you know, he surveys yeah. he surveys the whole uh, spectrum of role playing games that were available at the time, from fantasy and non fantasy games, and he even includes a sample adventure in there. So, if any of your readers want another dungeon written by Holmes, that's basically the only place to go 
Um, he has a short sample dungeon. He actually has an entire role playing game in there. Interesting. How is how is the sample dungeon? Yeah. Does it? it, it uh, it's not. It's not as good as the Xenopus dungeon, but it's uh, it's interesting. What what role playing? So other role playing games. Did you play other role playing games in the uh, early eighties? Yeah. yeah I, did you? Um, uh, yeah, I had. I had. I owned like most of the TSR games. You know, I had Star Frontiers. I had Gamma World. I did. And a lot of them, I just played a few times. But so I, it was mostly D and D. Got it. I think. Played some Marvel superheroes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I played Cthulhu, which I assume uh, is something uh, that uh, Holmes would have liked. But uh, yeah, I think that was most of us. We down. Oh, speaking. Of, yes, he was definitely a fan of of Cthulhu when it came out. He actually wrote a review of it um, that was published in a magazine, and I'm forgetting the name. Um, Gameplay, I think it was, um, of the first uh, edition of the Call of Cthulhu. That was one of the last like sort of gaming articles that he wrote. Was that. We got that republished a few years ago. One of the members of Scrum Club, the group that I'm in that puts on ScrumCon, writes a call of Cthulhu zine called Bait Al-Azif. And I was able to get Holmes' review of the original Call of Cthulhu game republished in that mm. zine. So we got we got permission from Chris Holmes to republish his, his review, awesome. which is neat. You can see like he was very enthusiastic about that game. Yeah, very interesting. That's super cool. You know, And that's the thing. We, we lived in such a at least me, I did, lived in such a bubble that all this other stuff happened in different places and different genres. That's what's been great about this. We learned a lot. So, again, uh, Zach, thank you for your time today. And we're already getting requests for you to come on again. People are like... <laughs> <laughs> sure, I would love to. Thank you so oh, much for now, having me on. Now we're getting a ruling from Ron. What? The interview continued after the dice roll, so you must re-roll. Oh, Okay. Yeah, you have to re-roll now. Apparently, they're, yeah, they're saying another roll. Because oh. the interview continued. We didn't finish. Well, that's true. It didn't take into account that oh. last part, which was, right. was gold. Which was gold, exactly. <laughs> okay, Probably here we go. That's <laughs> worse. I got a three again. The dice don't lie. <laughs> and this is perfect Holmes fashion. It ends where it, it ends with Holmes adage. Yep, the, whole, the dice never lie. All right. So for, for Grog Talk, I'm James. And I'm Dan. And, and this is our good friend Zach. Say, say goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks to all you listening. All right. See you Zach. next time on Grog Talk. Take care. This is Big Abushi Puppy Production. All rights reserved.